0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture is Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful day we've had so far as we consider your word. We look to your word with open minds and hearts, knowing that life is difficult and we suffer here on this earth and life is challenging, but we know you're with us. So be with us at this hour, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you felt exactly what I felt a little bit ago, but uh, a little twinge in my neck. We're singing songs here about loving God, God's great love for us, God's majesty in the heavens and all. And then Jay stands up and reads these verses of a man that sounds borderline suicidal. We read these words of the psalmist, the psalmist David who's talking about a time in his life when he felt as though God had completely abandoned him. So we're going to talk today about this subject, suffering in the silence of God. There may be a time in your life, and perhaps it's even now, where you feel as though you're suffering, and yet you don't hear from God. So we see in this psalm, David, speaking of those times in his life when his suffering seems to be unnoticed by God. A few years ago, there was an author named Irving Stone who wrote a book about Michelangelo and his, his teacher, Gerland The book was called The Agony and the Ecstasy. And those two words are two ends of a pole in which all of us live between in some fashion. On the one hand, there's a times of ecstasy in life when we find ourselves with everything going well. Life is going just the way we planned it, just the way we want it. And certain events happen in life that bring such joy that we feel like we can barely contain ourselves. And that's what the word ecstasy means. It means we're standing outside of ourselves. We can barely contain the joy in our hearts. And those may have been moments of your life when you first met the person that you loved and and married. It may have been the birth of your children. Maybe it's graduation. You finally finished the course of schooling and you got yourself a job and everything's going well. And then peppered throughout life, those highs that we experience, although we want them to stay with us forever, they don't. And so difficult times come. And that's where the agony comes in. And so the word agony, the Greek word there, means to struggle. And often in life we find ourselves struggling through the difficulties of this life. And so between the one hand, agony, and the other hand, ecstasy, and hopefully you don't live clear at the extremes. Bipolar people perhaps do, but most of us live somewhere between there, oscillating back and forth. Life is an up, life is a down. We have all these events in our life that we work our way through. But the psalmist here, David, is... Jay reads these words, seems to be the place where there's not much joy left in his heart. He finds himself not hearing from God at a time when he thought he needed God most. And so there's a darkness that comes over him. And we can think of darkness in two ways. There's an external, outside darkness, and those would be our circumstances. And so in our lives, when circumstances are good, we feel like everything is bright and beautiful and fine. Like a Thomas Kincaid painting. But most of our lives aren't lived like that. That's a romantic way of looking at life that is never going to last. Instead, we find darkness on the outside. And those are the circumstances we all go through where things aren't going well. Those might perhaps be personal events in our life. They might be emotional things we're going through. Maybe physical ailments or disabilities or pain that we all have. And those cast some sort of a dark shadow in our circumstances. Maybe it's with relationships, and so relationships break down in some fashion. We feel like the love we had from this person's not working like it used to. The marriage we enjoyed so much in the past is now in a rough time. The children that were so easy to raise when they were younger are now giving us challenges. And so those sort of relationships begin to challenge us. Maybe it's also economic. We're all going through different economic situations in life, and in the past couple of years... Many people have suffered severe economic dislocation because of the events of COVID and these sort of things. And so we have this external darkness that comes over us. But that same darkness can then become internal when it begins to leak into our own heart and own soul. And so within we start to see this darkness come upon us. And that's where the psalmist is at. And when that happens, as we read these verses, we realize... That the real crisis is not the external, the physical suffering, the economic difficulties we have, and all of those things. The real crisis in the psalmist's life here is a theological and spiritual crisis he's going through. He thought he could make it through life when things were going well. And even when things were difficult, he had the reserves and the strength to continue on. But as the duration and the intensity of those hard times lasted, He found himself in a place where the darkness overwhelms his own soul. And he feels as though there is no God looking after me anymore. And you might come to church this morning and singing about the majesty of God and the greatness of God and the love of God. But you don't feel it in your heart. You don't feel it in your soul. You don't feel like God is really paying attention to your particular needs. And when the darkness begins to overwhelm us, depression can set in. Anxiety sets in. And when these emotions overcome us, people can become in such a situation that they feel like just giving up. You feel just like David is here when you look up and ask, where are you, God? Now, all of us create some of our own difficulty based on our expectations. So, for example, if we expected more out of the Christian life and in some way came into the Christian life being told or believing that once you become a Christian, all your life is going to go along just fine. No more problems. God's going to solve all your problems. And there are, of course, many teachings out there that say essentially that. God's got all these great promises for you. So you can enjoy your best life now. But you find out it begins to break down. When your expectations are not met, then that creates within you an anxiety you didn't need to have. Because nobody should have ever told you that to begin with. There's been a couple times in my life when I've had to rent a hotel when traveling. Uh, on one occasion, I was uh, traveling to Reno for a deposition, and three attorneys are going out there. I'm the third. So the first guy, and this is true, the first guy checks in at a hotel in Reno, and they have his room available, and he got their hours before us, and so Bob is all checked in, and things are fine. I fly in with another attorney. And I let her check in first, as a gentleman would do. So she checks in, and the clerk says to her, We're all out of rooms. We no longer have these rooms. So we're going to have to bump you up into a deluxe room. And she's, oh, that's good for her. So she gets a better room, a deluxe room. And then I go up and I'm wondering if there's even something left for me. And he says, we're all out of deluxe rooms. We're going to have to give you the presidential suite tonight. And so I check into a a hotel in Reno in the presidential suite. And boy, it is a couple thousand feet. It had five televisions in it. It had a a bathroom, which was like a whole complex on its own. And my expectations were way exceeded beyond which I paid for that room. And people think that Christian life should be like that, that we should be checking into presidential suites in our life and everything's just fine. There's other times when you check into a hotel that's way below your expectations. Uh, Years ago, Deanna and I were driving with my mom up the coast of California to go up to Yosemite. And we had, they didn't have internet back then or phones. we check into hotels. We had a booklet you followed, you, had, you carried around that had all the hotels listed. And so Deanne, who's in the backseat I'm driving, she founds a nice hotel at the Sheridan, which was like a pretty good price. And so we call ahead and, and, and we uh, book a reservation. We go to the Sheridan. It, it, but it wasn't the Sheraton, it was the Sheridan. <laughs> and it was a pit. And we they checked us into the first room and we had to leave that room and go to this room was not acceptable even for a Carmichael. We couldn't stay in this hotel. And so we got to and it was so below our expectations. So your expectations can change the way you perceive the events of life, perceive the suffering in life. And sometimes a lot of the pain and suffering you think you're going through are simply because you had completely unrealistic expectations from the beginning. And people put that idea in your head that the Christian life is going to be a smooth sailing from here on out. But it's not. And that's what the psalmist is going through here. So we read these words again. How long, O Lord? That's the first question. Just pause on that. He's looking to God and asking, how long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, first in this this first verse, these first two questions are raising a theological problem. How long will you, O God, forget me? Where are you, God? I mean, I've done all the good things in life. I've been faithful. I'm doing these good things serving you, and you're absent in my time of need. And that's what the psalmist is feeling. So first notice, the first two questions here that's asked are theological, directed up towards God. Are they questions? Well, we can say they're rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question isn't really looking for information. And they're not even simply rhetorical questions. They're more like accusations. He's accusing God of neglecting him, of turning himself away. So that's the first question, the first crisis he has. It's this theological problem. And notice in verse 2, the first question there. The third in our series, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? So now he's turned from talking about you, God, to now talking about himself. How Along must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart. Now he's beginning to examine his own personal psychology, his own personal mindset, and he's feeling now the overwhelming nature of the darkness that's coming because he's in circumstances he can't explain. And then the second part of verse 2 raises a more of a, a sociological issue. He asks about the enemy. How long shall my enemy, how long shall they be exalted over me? So now we see these three directions, these questions go. First up to God, who's not listening to me, not paying attention. Second, into my own heart and soul, where I'm suffering from pain and and the darkness of the difficulties of life. And then third, the sociological relationships where I feel like I have enemies external to me that are coming after me. And after reading these questions, you might wonder, is that an appropriate way to pray to God? Is it appropriate for us to ask questions here, which are not really questions, but are more like accusations? Is it appropriate for us to accuse God of turning himself from us? Now, we know as we get on to the second and third stanzas of this little song, and that's what this is. A psalm is a song. It comes in three stanzas. The first stanzas here is asking these questions about a man who's in a life crisis. But when we see these questions being asked, we pray like this. And you think, well, in the third stanza, of course, he shows trust in God. But if you look at Psalm 39 or Psalm 88, you'll find there that God includes in his word the psalms of people suffering in life who express no hope. And I think, God, it allows us in our own lives to ask these sort of questions because he knows that's what humans do when we're suffering. We have to have these questions answered. And so the psalmist David is asking these questions. And I think God allows that and wants us to go to him with these sorts of questions, even asking, where are you, God, in my time of need? And so we see this psalmist. Now, notice a few things. First of all, in the first line, the first question that's asked, we see the psalmist in something of a prolonged struggle. He asks, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, the idea of being forgotten here is telling us that God used to know us. In fact, where he says, my Lord, how long will you owe Lord? He's saying that, God, you and I have been in this covenant relationship. You're my Savior. I've trusted in you. I've got this confidence in you. So that's not the issue. The issue is, where are you? You seem to have forgotten me. Now, I don't know if you've ever forgotten somebody's birthday or somebody's anniversary, your own or something like that. So you get in trouble for that. Forgetting something important. Can get you into trouble. And now the psalmist is accusing God of having forgotten him. And then he asks, will it be forever? Will you forget me forever? So the psalmist is saying here, this has not been a short-term problem, I wonder. This has been something persistent and long. The suffering has gone on for some time, and I wonder now, if it's forever. Where are you, God? The reserves that I had from the great joy we have from the good times are now all depleted. It's kind of like when you put your crock pot on in the morning, and you've got your roast in there, and it's heated up, and it's cooking. It's going along just fine. And then the dog unplugs it. It continues to cook for just a short time. It's got some heat reserves to keep it going, but eventually it cools, and it stops cooking, and it's, it's not working anymore. And so when you get home, you've got no dinner. And so the psalmist is feeling like here that he's got no heat left. There's no energy left. He's got nothing within him to keep on going. You've forgotten me, God. And so he asks God this question. And it's sometimes, we see the duration, is it forever? It's not under the sharpest and most difficult of trials that we go through that we feel this sense of being abandoned by God. It's by the the duration. It's by that sense of abandonment that goes on for just longer than we thought it should. Just longer than we thought we could bear. And so that duration of the abandonment, this sense that God's not there, is what causes that deep crisis in our life. So that's the first question he asks. Have you forgotten me forever, O Lord? Look at the second question again. How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? Now it's no longer simply God forgetting. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's more of an act of hiding your face from me. He's accusing God of actually turning his back knowingly on him. And maybe we feel that way in lives during different times when we go through trials We can forgive somebody who perhaps forgot about us, but what if somebody just intentionally walked away from us? And that's what the psalmist is feeling. Where are you, God, now that I'm going through this? How can I make this without your presence with me and in me? And so he's struggling with us now having been forgotten. Uh, And when we in life feel like things have got to a point where God has turned his eyes away from us. He's no longer looking towards us. We feel that sense of of abandonment, that sense of loss, that sense of alienation from the one who told us he loves us. We just sing about that. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And then you look at your life and you say, but where is that love? And so that's what the psalmist is going through now. We feel that in our family lives sometimes when relationships break down between spouses or between parents and children, we wonder where is that good time of love that we had in the past? Sometimes in life we feel like uh, work is going just, just fine, we're making progress, we're doing well, and then we meet, reach a, a stage in life where it's just not working for us anymore. All through life we have these things go on. The psalmist is struggling with that. And then notice now the third question he asks, beginning in verse 2. And we see here now where this depression sort of sets in and dark thoughts begin to overwhelm him. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And notice now he finds himself in a place where the darkness is setting in, and in his own soul, he can no longer find that joy that he once had. That pleasure he once had in God, that joy that he had in the Christian life, he now finds it, it's not there anymore. And so, where is that, God? How long can I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow? in my heart, all the day. the depression is a significant problem and has been forever. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not simply new because of COVID, although it's been certainly aggravated by that. And now depression is leading to more suicides than, than we've experienced in many years in recent years. But depression goes back for millennia. It goes back at least to David here, and certainly long before that, where you feel like, I can't keep going on. And there's something missing in life, and it's just not working. And there can be a variety of factors that go into that. First, we think about how we overcome this, the, these times of life where our depression can be sort of minor. Everybody has moments of, of depression, of sadness in life. It can become clinical, where you actually need the intervention, intervention of medical help. And I know there was a time in, in recent decades where we were told that, All you need to do is read the scriptures and the Bible and God will give you all the joy you need and you don't need psychologists or doctors to help you through with that. But of course, I think now the better way of understanding that, that was wrong. In fact, sometimes clinical depression can be caused by a physical problem in the brain. The brain's working, so it's not getting the chemicals it needs. And so medical intervention is necessary sometimes. But for many of us, there's a a level of depression we go up and down in. And for some people, it just seems to stay down longer and longer each time it goes down. And so he's looking at himself saying, how can I make it through this? And so this depression sets in, and sometimes it can be caused by uh, physical circumstances when you feel sick or an illness comes upon a person, when cancer strikes, and then you no longer have good days, and every day becomes another bad day stacked on top of another. Depression sets in, and you're wondering, where is God in this? And how can I find a way out of the darkness of my own heart and my own soul? And then notice the fourth question that's asked here at the end of verse 2. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now most of us don't have enemies like David had. David here, we don't know for sure. He may have been referring to Saul at this point. When David was young, King Saul was chasing him. And you can read 1 Samuel 19, 20, 21. The story goes on there for a number of chapters where King Saul is chasing David to the Judean hillside, trying to find David to kill him. And so David is running and hiding, and every night he goes to sleep wondering if this is a night I never wake up when Saul slits my throat while I sleep. So he's got this sense of a real enemy. Now, most of us don't have people we fear are going to slit our throat at night, chasing us in that sense, but we do have an enemy. Peter talks about the enemy that goes around like a roaring lion. We have an enemy in the devil who does seek to tempt us and challenge us and who is our enemy. And so we don't live a life that is carefree. We are in a battle. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. So now he's feeling like he's even being abandoned to his enemy. Here is a man whose life is in crisis. And so what does he do? That's the second point. Verses 3 and 4, a plea for deliverance. He says in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, we can just briefly observe the the parallel nature between verses one and two in the first stanza of this song and verses three and four in the second stanza. The first stanza begins with the first two lines that are questioning God Where are you, God? You seem to have forgotten me. You seem even to have turned your eyes away from me, intentionally abandoning me. And so when we come to verse three for this plea, What he says is, consider God and answer God. Answer me, O Lord my God. So his plea is directed at the same point of his complaint. The complaint is matched by his request for God to now intervene. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Consider what I'm going through and answer the difficulties I have. Answer my questions. And then the third uh, uh, point that's made there, light up my eyes. So these are three imperative verbs. Three imperative verbs. Consider me, answer me, and then lighten up my eyes. Enlighten me. And then there's three motivations that are mentioned here. Notice the three motivations. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. And lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And so we see here this this parallel nature. He asks God, in fact, in an imperative sense, the, the, the voice tells God, consider me, answer me, enlighten me. And here's the motivation, God. Do you really want my enemies to say that they defeated me? Because when they say that, they're really saying they defeated you. When they defeat me, they defeated you. Uh, and so that's the motivation the psalmist is giving to God. Think about what you're doing here, Lord, in, our life, in my life. And so that's a challenge. And when he does this, he's given us a sense of, of, of abandonment, that God's not there. But notice kind of the corollary to that. You can only feel abandoned when you know there's a God who was there to begin with. When you know there's a God who was there and saved you in the beginning, and then a time comes where you don't sense he's there, that's when you feel abandoned. So an unbeliever never feels abandoned by God. When you see the atheists talking so proudly on TV explaining their atheism in in the books and the lectures they give, they sense no sense of abandon my God because there was never a God to abandon them. But we know there is a God that sometimes we sense has abandoned us. But there also is a solution, and that's the solution that the psalmist sees. The same God that we sense has abandoned us is also the God we know that still can hear us and still can turn towards us and still can come to our aid and our rescue. And so that's what the psalmist is getting at here. I know you're still there. I don't see you, I don't hear from you, but I know you're still there. He's not given up that hope. There's still that hope that he has. And so he turns to God in that hope in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall also rejoice in your salvation... I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now we have here in this, these two verses, this third stanza of the song, three time frames being mentioned. Notice again, but I have trusted in the past, in your steadfast love. In the past, I, have been, I, I exercised faith in your steadfast love. In the present, he says, my heart shall rejoice presently in my salvation because I know you've not abandoned me, God. I know you're still there. But in the future, he says, I will sing to the Lord in the future because he has dealt bountifully with me in the past. And so the psalmist here, David, is now structuring this this moment of trust and praise to God by knowing that his future singing and his present sense of salvation comes from his knowledge of faith in God, trust in God from his God's enduring love. Now, the Hebrew word that's used there is a word that we've talked about. You may know again. It's the Hebrew word chesed. The, the, the chesed, it's said with that little growl in your voice. That is a word that doesn't really translate to English well. Uh, it does, it's got to be more than just the word love. It's an enduring covenantal love. It's a love that came, come, comes down from God and came to David when God saved David and those who trust in God. It's that covenant. It's a promises that God has made. And so the faith we have in God's covenantal promised love we recognize that God's promises will not fail and so the psalmist is saying here I'm trusting in you God knowing that I will not be let down in the end that your love will not fail me I know you're going to be there you will not abandon me and so that's the trust that he has it's in this pervasive all-encompassing love and that's why we can sing on Sunday mornings oh how he loves us and it's not simply a, a, a casual friendship love or romantic love. and stuff. It's a real, covenantal, promised love that's enduring and that will never fail. And so that's the promise that the psalmist sees here and recognizes. And so the grief that we have is real. The suffering he's going through is real and is not yet solved at this point. Nevertheless, he still looks to God in that promise that God has made. Now, we can think about a, a, few, a few things about this psalm so far. First of all, as a model for our prayers, when we read this psalm, when we think about what he's saying here. We see a man, David, who's perhaps much like us. Now, the psalm doesn't tell us exactly what David's going through, and perhaps that's good because when we read this psalm, all we know is he's going through these times of, of ache in his heart and his life where God seems not to be there. But by not telling us the exact reason, it kind of opens it up so that we might now apply it to ourselves easier. It's not limited specific, specifically to the circumstances that David's going under, uh, but it's instead open up to whatever circumstance you may be going through. And so there's that sense in which it's easier for us to see this, but, but there is this pattern here that's allowed to us. And so we can, in honesty. And that's all that God wants from us, is when we have these questions, go to him with the questions. Look to God to answer the challenges that you have. And God will be there for us. And we see this psalm also as a sense in which the question of good and evil in the world and why bad things happen to good people like us, why does that happen? Why do we go through these times in life? You think perhaps of Job. You remember the story of Job whose life seemed to have been going along just very well. He's got great wealth. He's got a very large family that loves him. And everything was going on well in Job's life. He couldn't have asked for anything more. And then Satan goes to God. The story is told of Satan who goes to God and says, you know that man Job down there, he doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you simply because of what you give to him. The reason he loves you, the reason he's faithful to you, is because you've blessed him with so many things. He's got a great family. He's got great wealth. He's got cattle. He's got land. He's got every need taken care of. He's got great health. And so Satan says to God, and this is a challenge that he makes, you're only in really a transactional relationship with Job. Job only loves you because of what he can get out of you. And as long as those blessings come, certainly Job will love you. That's not the problem. But take those blessings away. Take his family away. Take his wealth away. Take his health away. And then let's see how faithful Job is. And so Job continues, the story continues, where God does, in fact, allow all the blessings of Job's life to be taken away from him. And Job now feels the sense of loss when he loses his children, when he loses his wealth, when his health begins to fail. And not just fail, but he's suffering with his health. Everything is bad now. But what does Job do? Does he say, oh, everything's fine, Lord, I know it's going to be fine. You still love me. No, he begins to do exactly what the psalmist is doing here, asking God, where are you, God, in my time of need? Where are you when I need you? Where are you in the the times of blessings were fine? Why didn't that continue? Where are you now? All of us find times in our life when we looked at God saying, everything was going good with my child in the past. Why did it turn out bad now? We did everything we could. Everything was going well in my job, and then the company closes? How could that happen to me? I thought you were there for me. And that's what happened to Job. But the story of Job ends with Job constantly looking to God, asking for God, but never looking away from God himself. He, ne- he senses that God has abandoned him, but he knows in reality perhaps that God has not. Even in those times of life when we don't see from God hear from God, feel God's there. Job, nevertheless, remained faithful. Even when others said, curse God and die, Job said, I'm going to stay faithful. I don't understand, God, why you're putting me through this, but I'm not going to curse you. I'm not going to abandon you. And so Job is an illustration for us of that. So how can we respond to a sense of abandonment in our life? When we find ourselves at a time where God seems to have abandoned us, what now can we do? A couple of things. First of all, Um, we can respond, one, by saying, God obviously doesn't love me. And a lot of people feel that way, that perhaps God doesn't love us after all, that perhaps I'm not lovable. And people might feel that way because of the way they were raised. Perhaps they were raised with a parent who wasn't very loving, who was always critical, and you felt like, my parents never approved of anything I did, and you never felt you had a father or a mother who really, in fact, loved you. Or maybe it's some other relationship in life that broke down and you feel like perhaps I'm not lovable. Perhaps you are sitting here this morning knowing that when people look at me, they think I must be a good person. I I groom well. I'm nice to people here. But if they only knew the things I've done in my past, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. You've got you feel you've got to hide every evil thing you've ever done. Well, let me tell you, if you feel that way, we would still love you. You're not the only person in this room who's done things in the past for which you are not only feel bad about, but feel utterly and grossly ashamed of. But God still loves you anyway, and that's the meaning of God's love. It comes to us even when we feel like we're not lovable. I mean, who among us is? Do we really think we're that good and lovable? No, but God's love overwhelms and overcomes the sin in our hearts and lives that makes us feel that way. And so it's only an apparent feeling. So some feel like they're not lovable. Some go the next step and to say there is no God. And when you feel abandoned like this, you might feel now you have no choice but to simply abandon the faith. And there's been any number of apparent Christians and believers in life who've gone through these circumstances. And and they've been faithful in church for many years. And then bad things happen and life begins to fall apart. And they, they then fade away and drop from the faith. And then when you talk to them, you hear that sense of cynicism. And it's not that they don't believe in God, it's that they're angry with God and hate God because things were going well until you, God, took it all away from me. And if you'd have just left me alone, I'd have been just fine on my own, but you had to make me feel bad in this life. And so they say there must not be a God, perhaps even when they know that there there is. That's the second way people can respond. But the third way to respond is what the psalmist here gives to us. And that's to simply say, to wait, to wait on God and to give space. Now, I know it's hard when we're going through hard times to sometimes regain our sense of balance. You know, if you're, if you're going through a difficult time and you can find space to step, step away from it in your own time of prayer and study and reflection and, and friendship with others, you can find a place of quiet, calm where you can find some sense of balance and say, even though life is going difficult now, I know God's still there, so I can make my way through it. But even if you can't find that quiet sense of calm where you're at presently, because life is too choppy and difficult and challenging, wait it out. Keep waiting. There's a lesson in that. Uh, Some years ago, uh, I was up with my son and hunting, and we're deep in the Colorado mountains in the woods, and he was probably just six years old, five years old, and I told him, if you ever get lost, just stop and stay where you are. I will find you. I will track you down. I will find you. Don't worry, Just stay where you are. Don't keep wandering and going deeper and moving. And so I taught this lesson, told him repeatedly. And so now in this one early cold morning, I thought, today's the day to apply it, to find out for sure what he does. And so we hiked deep into the wood. And it wasn't that deep. But how far can you go with a six-year-old through knee-high snow? But we go what appeared to him to be deep into the woods over hills a couple of hills and a few valleys and so we find a place to sit down and it's early in the morning before sunrise and it's cold outside and he quickly falls asleep as you might expect from a six-year-old who's awakened at 4:30 in the morning and so when he sleeps i then walk away i leave him behind but i don't leave him out of my sight i walk up to the top of a hill just beyond it or i can now sit down and watch him And so I'm watching him, and soon the sun rises, and if you've been in the mountains, you know the cold that happens. When the sun first rises, it warms the air mass on the earth, which then itself rises and reverses with the cold air mass from hundreds of thousands of feet up that now descend upon you. And so the coldest time of the morning is when that cold, high atmospheric air inverts and comes down and crashes on you, and you get just freeze to death, and you know that. Uh, and, and that's what woke him so the sun rises and the cold sets in so now I see him stirring and he wakes and he sits there on the hillside where I've got him planted and he's looking left he's looking right he looks around and then he just sits there just sits there and so I'm sitting there watching him he can't see me but I'm looking at him I know that he's fine I'm taking care of him but he can't see me but he's been told just wait I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to abandon you. So he sits there. And after some time, it may have been an hour, not much longer than that. I finally say he's had enough. He proved himself. So I go rescue him. Uh, He did well by waiting, just staying there. In our own sense, sometimes we feel like God's abandoned us and we wonder, where's God at? What We have to remember is that God never did abandon us. It may feel like that. It may feel like in the darkness of our heart and soul that God's left us behind and abandoned us. But no, he hasn't. So we wait it out. We stick through it. We can help ourselves by studying scripture, by reflecting on these things. We can help ourselves find that quiet place of of calm or we can uh, sense God's presence by coming to church by visibly seeing others who are being blessed, who are living life where they feel like God is with them, we can see glimpses of God working in their life, knowing that he'll be back into mine, even though I don't feel it right now. But when you're sensing abandonment, I mean, that's a hard thing. You feel like you can't, it doesn't get worse than that. But think about what that means, to be in the darkness, to feel like you've been buried in the darkness. How do we overcome that? How can we get out of the darkness? Does being overwhelmed by darkness sound familiar at all? In Matthew 27, verse 46, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at that point, Jesus is saying that God has actually objectively, in reality, forgotten him, forsaken him, abandoned him. And during those moments, he was abandoned by God as he bore our sins on the cross. And that's the meaning of what Jesus did for us. He lived that moment, that time, actually, in reality, being abandoned by God. So that we only have to feel like we've been abandoned when we really haven't. God in forgiving us of our sins never does abandon us. He's always there. He's forgiven us. So even when we feel like He's been we've been abandoned, we know He hasn't abandoned us. He's there for us. And so during these times of life, remember that the darkness is only temporary. It doesn't last. It's not an object of final reality that won't change. It's a temporary event. It may go for some duration. But it's still temporal. It's only for a time. And then that will pass. And you will one day know that God was always there. We suffer with pain, with difficulty, with trials. Sometimes you feel like crying yourself to sleep because of the loss. But there's nothing that's not one day solved when God resurrects all those who are dead and all of us together and we enjoy the eternal kingdom with him. And that's the promise that God has made, that he will always be with us. And so we think of the contrast between the agony and the ecstasy, the agony of life as we struggle, the difficulties, but also the ecstasy in the times of knowing that God is there for us and will bless us, knowing that the promise is that one day that will be our eternity with him because he will never abandon us. Let's pray. Our as we think on your word. We recognize that there's many times in life we feel like you have abandoned us. We feel like we can't see your presence or know you're with us. And we simply ask God that you come back into our lives. Give us that sense and time of blessing in our life. But we know that even without that, in times of distress, and times of crisis, that we should not allow this to turn into a spiritual theological crisis, knowing these temporal events will pass. Help us, Lord, to be people who wait on you, who trust in you, who are confident in your promise to us, knowing that you'll always be there for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.